Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King, our continuation of the book of Acts, taking a close look at what the early church was like, how the Holy Spirit worked to start them and empower them. The picture you're seeing there on our first slide today is an interpretation of the stoning of Stephen that we'll find in Acts chapters 7 and 8. We won't quite get there today, but we're going to meet Stephen today, along with some other very special servants of the church, which are designated in Acts chapter 6 to solve a problem. As we're seeing in the book of Acts, we're seeing an ebb and flow to the action. We're seeing the church grow and then be faced with opposition and grow again faced with opposition. And what we see here in Acts chapter 6 is it being faced by a problem within. Instead of pressure or persecution from outside the church, they have a struggle, a challenge of uh, service within the church. And we're going to see today how they deal with this. And what we're going to find is we're going to find a great example for ministry anytime we face challenges in ministry, how to face them in a very common sense and very biblical kind of way. And so we're going to begin by looking here at the growing church and how they deal with the problem of ministry within their ranks. Uh, what we want to take a look at is Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses. So here's what it says there in Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, as is appropriate, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, it's our earnest desire today that this scripture will accomplish your purposes in us, in all that hear. Lord, increase our faith to understand these things, to accept them, and to be molded and shaped by them to better conform to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we may be indeed the best help we can be to one another and to the world. We ask you to bless this time, therefore, together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there we have a fairly simple and straightforward passage, and the problem here seems to be uh, fairly simple. The problem is that there's been a lapse in care, a lapse in care. And the uh, lapse in care is uh, connected to what we read about in Acts chapter 2, and it was reiterated in chapter 4, is that the church was caring for one another. They were meeting one another's physical needs in any such way as someone had need. They were sharing among themselves. And apparently, as we get to Acts chapter 6, they were sharing with specifically widows who were in need. It should first be noticed that they were actually doing this. It seemed only natural to the early church. And this continues the theme 
of seeing the church gathered together, ministering to one another in fellowship with one another. And I want to point out that this care that the church has within its ranks and, and for one another is not just limited to the locality. We see it here in Jerusalem, but then we see the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and accounted in his uh, letter to the Corinthians that he was gathering a, a collection for the needs of the saints that were in Judea at that time because there was a famine in the land. And so he was actually bringing money from other churches to give relief to the churches in the area of Jerusalem and Judea. Another important detail that we see from this is that these were Hellenists. If we go back to the scriptures here in verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. And so it's making a distinction among the people here. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. They were likely not even from Jerusalem, perhaps coming in with the many that came in at the time of Pentecost and joined in with the church. They heard the proclamation of the gospel. They believed and they have remained there to stay in fellowship with those people or to learn more before going back to home or for whatever reason, they are there and they do not speak the native Hebrew as the other Jews do. If you go back to the Old Testament, you find that there was a great dispersion of the Jews. When they were conquered by the nation Assyria, when the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, the Assyrians scattered many of the Jews across the known world at the time. Then when the Babylonians came along and they conquered Judah, they took many of the the Jews out of that area and took them to Babylon. And in the years remaining, as the land was kind of a waste, had been brutalized by war, uh, many of them wandered off to other nations. But many had come back at this point because indeed the uh, nation was reestablished. And so we have many of them making the trek back to Jerusalem, but not having the Hebrew language as something native to them, having been brought up in a foreign land. Now, so they didn't speak Hebrew, but many did speak Hebrew. Many passed it down through their generations, and they and these Hellenists, not speaking Hebrew, not growing up perhaps in the land, also didn't observe some of the other regulations that the other faithful Jews in that area would have observed. So what we see, nevertheless, is that these are believers. There are some believers that were Hellenists. There are some that were Hebrews. There are some that were completely something else. But what this might be happening here is this might be a sin of partiality. Was this a sin of partiality? We don't know for sure, but that is a possibility. And this sin of partiality is spoken of very harshly uh, against in the book of James in particular in chapter 2. Now, a modern word we might use is discrimination or prejudice. Uh, but I don't want to prejudice our understanding of what's going on here with the modern word. So we're going to use partiality, the biblical word. And all this means is to offer someone different treatment based on their outward circumstances rather than their intrinsic worth. Now, we as believers know every human being is made in the image of God and therefore worthy of the same respect and consideration of any other human being. As a matter of fact, there is no worldview in existence that should have as a basic foundation what we have in the Christian faith, and that is the universal 
equality of worth of human beings. And so what the Bible commands is don't be guilty of partiality. Don't be guilty of favoring one person over another because of anything outward. That would be their ethnicity. That would be their wealth. That would be their circumstances. That would be their gender. That would be anything. That could be anything outward instead of facing them based on their intrinsic worth. So what we're going to see is uh, the example James gives in James chapter 2 is wealth. And he says, look, if you're having a church service and you're getting together and teaching and a wealthy person comes in and you give them the seat of honor and you make the, uh, the, the poor person sit on the floor or stand in the back, that would be wicked. That would be a sin. And this is what James is talking about. And this is maybe what was happening here. Now, we don't know for sure. The language barrier could have been part of this breakdown in communication. We're not certain. But it could have been a sin of partiality. Uh, what it definitely was was probably a lack of love and a faith. Because with sufficient love and sufficient faith, there would be sufficient care to make sure this didn't happen. But this is what we're seeing in Acts chapter 6. They identify the problem, and in love and in faith, they are acting to stop the problem, to remedy the problem. Now, a distinguishing characteristic of the church is its love, the love for one another. Jesus said in John chapter 13, this is how people will know that you're mine, that you love one another. And then we go back to James chapter 2 and we find out that our love for one another, our expression of that, our meeting of people's needs is a demonstration of true faith. Look what it says in the book of James in these verses here. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying is real sincere faith is going to result in some kind of works. And indeed, he is right. I think of the example he uses as somewhat absurd, but is, is very simplistic and, and very simple to understand. If we don't meet the needs of one another, how can we say that we love one another? How can we say that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not meet the needs of one another and thus showing each other love? So by James' logic, to neglect the needs of someone within the congregation would be a lack of faith. And it was immediately recognized here in Acts chapter 6 uh, by the apostles and therefore was a real problem that needed addressed. And indeed, it was. So the problem is indeed a, a lack of love, a lack of faith. Uh, but indeed, it could also be that this was simply a, uh, a threat to the apostles' priorities. I want you to notice that in, in verse 2, when the apostles talk about this, the twelve summoned the full number, it says, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So in other words, this was threatening their current ministry of preaching the word. The, the apostles, the twelve, uh, were that what they were doing and their priorities were being threatened by this competing need to be addressed. And they reiterate this in, in verse 4 when they say this about finding the men will devote ourselves 
to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the idea was let's find some qualified individuals to take this thing over so that it doesn't take the apostles from the work that they are doing. And so what the work they were doing was not just the gospel proclamation, as we've seen in the previous chapters, but also the edifying of the body of Christ by teaching them all things. Remember when Jesus said to go and make disciples, he said, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So what the apostles were doing is they were teaching the people about everything that Jesus said and he did. So they were teaching about the identity of Jesus and they were teaching about the connections of Jesus to the Old Testament passages, the fulfillments of prophecies, all these things. And those things were the apostles' priorities. It is the first thing listed in the infant church in Acts chapter 2. After the preaching at the day of Pentecost, Luke gives us another summary passage. He frequently has these summary passages to transition from one account to another. And he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of breaking of bread and prayers. And so there's a great many things they were devoted to, all of them continually. But first one listed by Luke is this apostles' teaching, the dedication to that teaching. So this is a very important ministry. But I want you to notice something as I take you back to this passage. I want you to stare at it. And I want you to see clearly nowhere do the apostles say that their teaching and preaching is more important than this ministry. All they're saying is that it is our place to be dedicated to the prayer and the ministry of the word. And this is interfering. So rather than just put that off and saying, well, that's less important, they establish a way to get it done. They assign these men to accomplish the task. And and this is true of how the Bible handles everything. Uh, When we look at the letters of Paul specifically, he talks about how we each have different gifts. We each have different, play different roles as different parts of a body, as different parts of a building. And he explains that all these things are as important, one as important as another, regardless of which ones are more visible, visible or given more honor. They're all of equal value. And this is what we're saying in, from the Christian point of view about human beings in general. They are all of equal value, and the gifts are all of equal value, and the ministries are all of equal importance to the work of Jesus Christ. And so while they never say it's more important, they do say it's interfering with our focus. We're going to have someone else focused to this. As Paul explains in the letter to the Ephesians about this, he's explaining to them the importance of unity. And in his discussion about unity, he reveals how it is the church is to function. And he speaks of Jesus Christ as giving some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And the word shepherds there is pastors. And the way it's joined with the word teachers, you might say pastors slash teachers. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, those were equipping ministries. The apostles were to equip the people for the work of the ministry. And likewise, your pastor, his assignment is to equip the people of his flock, of his congregation, for the work of the ministry. Now, the pastors and the apostles ought to do the work of the ministry in such a way as to be examples, 
But by and large, the bulk of the work of ministry is going to be done by the congregation. Now, this is in this is in direct opposition to the way many of our churches function. Many of our churches function by hiring someone. They call him the minister because he does the ministry, and then they show up and enjoy Sunday morning. But that is not at all what the New Testament is showing us. The New Testament is showing us every believer has a ministry. They have a part in the ministry pushing forward the kingdom of God, ministering to the needs of the people within the body of Christ, and ministering to the word of God outside the body of Christ. It's intended for every believer, and that's why the pastors are called equippers. They're not called the ministers. They equipped. They equipped toward the ministry. So we need to know our part, and the apostles, to their credit, they knew their part. Their part was the ministry of the word and prayer. And they said, we ought not to take away from that, but we do need to see that this other thing gets done by responsible people. So that's the uh, definition of the problem there. So what is the solution here? The solution uh, is multifaceted. First of all, they say this. They say, pick out from among you. These were to be found among the congregation, not outsourced but those within, those who were of the number of believers. Now, if you have a church, you might outsource some things of that church. You might outsource the the mowing of the lawn. You might outsource the, the care of the buildings and facilities. But to tell you the truth, the real work of the ministry, which is the caring for people, the loving of people, the building up of people, and the training and the proclamation of the word of God, all of those things those ought to be done by members of the congregation. And indeed, I believe it is helpful to have members of the congregation involved in every aspect, including building care and things like that, where it is possible. So this particular thing, though, caring for those within the congregation, this ought not to be outsourced. It ought to be done in-house, so to speak. And I want you to notice also when he said, pick out from among you, uh, the apostles then give these qualifications to them. Pick out from among you these particular types of fellows. They did not say, get yourself prayed up so you get into a trance and you get some kind of a divine feeling come upon you. Don't, Don't survey the people to see who feels called to this kind of a position. Look, much of church work is not rocket science. If there's something that is needed and you can fulfill the need, there doesn't need to be a lot of praying or thinking about it. Now, everything we do ought to be covered in prayer, but sometimes it's just common sense. This needs done. I can do it. End of discussion. And this is what we're seeing here. A real practical, fine men who are qualified to do this and appoint them to do it. Men of good repute. These would be men that should have a good reputation among people. Now, that doesn't mean they've lived a sinless life because none of us have. And in fact, some of us have come from and been saved from terrible lives, lives in which people would point to us and say, that person can't possibly be qualified for the Lord's work. But this would be men of good present reputation, men who have shown themselves to be the real thing, 
They have shown themselves to be selfless. They have shown themselves to be upright in their dealings with people and not dishonest and, and, and not rude and all these other things. They wanted to be of good reputation. They wanted to be full of the Spirit. And this is important because every believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit of God. All who believe. It is the Spirit that regenerates us. It's by the Spirit that we're convicted of our sins and, and can even respond to the gospel. And so the work of the Spirit is in every believer. Every spirit or every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. But when the Bible says filled with the Spirit, it is usually talking about somebody who is exercising the spiritual disciplines. They are focused upon the Word of God. They are focused upon the person of Jesus Christ in their prayer, in the things that they say to one another. They are in fellowship with God's people and meeting the needs of God's people. This is what it means to be full of the Spirit. The term full of the Spirit most often in the Scripture is associated with proclaiming the Word of God. These ought to be people that aren't afraid to share the message of truth with someone else. So they are to be full of the Spirit. They are to be full of wisdom. And of course, we know that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of wisdom. We know that Jesus is the wisdom of God, and salvation is the wisdom and the power of God itself. So indeed, this should be full of wisdom. And there's a promise in the Bible for this. In James chapter 1, he says very plainly, if any of you lack, lacks wisdom, ask God and he will give it. This is one of those things, praying in the name of God. How do I know what God's will is? How do I know what to properly pray for? I'm telling you, if you pray for wisdom, God's going to grant you wisdom. Now, it might not come easy, and it's not going to drop on your head like a bomb necessarily, but he's going to give you wisdom. And that's something that, that is a promise of Scripture that we should believe. He goes on to talk about the quality of that wisdom in James chapter 3 as he discusses the most common way in which we all sin in the things that we say. He said, he once again brings up wisdom, and he talks about the wisdom of God, and he contrasts it to wisdom of the world. So these are men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Now Paul gives more specific qualifications in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. I want to take you there and I want to show you that because here he, he addresses this office, which we'll see is known as deacons. And here's what he says there about these deacons. He says, deacons likewise, now he's referring back he just had discussion about elders. So he says deacons in the same way ought to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, if these are married fellows, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So again, this is a list of character attributes of what is officially called in the church deacons that Paul lays out here for us in 1 Timothy 3. 
And so he says, you know, men of good repute, full of the uh, spirit and of wisdom. And then he says, these will appoint whom we will appoint. They prayed and laid their hands on them. Did the congregation pray over these guys and lay hands on them or did the apostles? I'm not sure which. According to the language it's there, it's unclear. But the most important thing that the church could do for these men is pray for them. And then secondly, this laying on of hands, this was something that was traditionally done in a church and indeed is done in many churches to this day, was a symbolic of the appointment. It was symbolic of that. Now there's one occurrence in the book of Acts where the laying on of hands is the occasion in which the Lord fills the people with the Holy Spirit. But that does not make a rule. Uh, By a rule, (laughs) laying on of hands is generally symbolic. The Holy Spirit doesn't need physical touch to fill a person. Uh, The Holy Spirit does as he will. And indeed, many people have been filled with the Spirit without the laying on of hands. But indeed, this is a very important act. You pray for the people. You lay on hands. Do you see the formality of this? Do you see the, the ceremony of such a thing? Because this is serious. Those chosen are going to be taking up this very serious ministry of the Lord. And it is something that should be uh, at least taken as seriously as our vocations. I challenge you with this, and here's something I want you to think about. If just half, a simple majority, of the people that regularly attend church took their belonging to the body of Christ as seriously as they take their jobs, what might Christianity look like? How might that be different? Because if you have any experience in church work or even in the corporate world, you understand that 10 to 20% of the people do about 80% of the work. But what if we all took it so seriously? And that's why Paul, or Paul, not Paul, the, the apostles here lay out these qualifications. They make it something important. They put a weight on it by saying, bring these men to us and then praying over them, laying on hands of these fellows, they are officially appointed to this service. Well, this is powerfully important. And this solution, we know these become known as deacons, even though the word deacon doesn't appear likely in your translation of this passage. Let me show you what's going on here uh, by showing you this in the Bible. If we go back to... uh, to chapter 6 here in Acts. I'm going to highlight a word for you. And in verse 1, it is the word distribution. In verse 2, the same root, not the exact same word, but the same root is translated as serve, to serve. And then it appears, the same root appears in another word in verse 4, and it's translated as ministry. Well, why translate this same word group in different ways? Well, because it depends on how it functions in the passage that determines its translation. And we see here the idea of service, the idea of uh, ministry, which is simply a service. All of these words share a root with the word that we translate as deacon. And so that's where we get the idea that this passage is about deacons specifically. Now, I want to make a distinction here because this word group is used throughout the New Testament, and usually it is simply translated as servant. 
but in a couple of places it is translated as deacons. How do we know whether this is talking about someone generally being a servant, which would be a complement within the church, generally being a servant or someone being a, an office holder, a recognized deacon of the church? Well, the way we tell is context. It is the context that determines whether this refers to the office of deacon or just means servant. Well, how do we tell? Well, when we look in Acts chapter 6, we see this very plainly. There is a formality to the appointment of these men. They are appointed, and that word is used when someone is given an office. They are given a job, not a physical office, but a position. And so here we know it's speaking of a particular position of deacon. We go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it's much easier there. Deacons likewise, okay? How do we know that's not just servants? Because up here in the beginning of this chapter, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. And so he speaks then of all the qualifications of an elder or overseer here, and then he turns his topic, his attention to this office of deacon. And there's one more place where it's usually translated as deacons in the Bible, and that's in Philippians chapter 1. Sorry, I left all my markups on there. But uh, look at Philippians chapter 1. It's just in his address to the church at the beginning of his letter. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. We know there it refers to the office because it's paired up in parallel with this word overseer or elder. And so that's how we come to Acts chapter 6. We say, well, this is about deacons, and sometimes the word just simply means a servant. So you'll see it used elsewhere, just referring to someone as a servant, which, as I said, is a compliment in the Christian church, that we would be servants. That means we're about the business of being what we ought to be. And so we have an office, and we have a description here. And the uh, solution that they came up with was to choose from among them qualified men who are assigned this specific responsibility. But I want to notice something here, and I, I want this to go, um, I want you to see something here that's very important. When we look at these attributes, good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And then we go when we go to the scriptures and we look at what Paul said about deacons in in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you know, dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, um, holding the faith with a clear conscience. I want you to understand that these attributes should be the aspiration of every single Christian. It's not that every single Christian needs to try to be uh, uh, an office holder of deacon within their congregation, but to tell you the truth, what they're describing here really should be every believer in Jesus Christ, period, ought to have these character attributes. So what they're basically saying in, in describing these men and sending them out to find these men is they're basically saying, bring us the real deal people who are really Christian and act like it. And remember what James said, if you claim to be a Christian, but you don't act like it, you don't have much credibility with your claim. And so he is saying, the, the apostles are saying, go find us 
true Christians among yourselves. Bring them here. We'll assign them this work of this ministry. So that was their solution, was to uh, find these men, these deacons, as we see. Now, what is the result of this? Well, look in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Things kept going. This did not get in their way. They dealt with the problem as it came up. The apostles were able to continue to focus on the word. And because of that, they continued to grow. The word of God continued to increase. Why? Because the apostles could focus on it. The apostles could do their job in the ministry of the word of God. It worked. Luke has given us an example. I guarantee you, knowing the nature of humanity, knowing the nature of church work, this was not the only problem they were having when it came to this time we're talking about in Acts chapter 6. But Luke brought this one forward to show us how the early church dealt with it. And they dealt with it in such a way as it was blessed by God. The results show us this was approved by God. This was something that kept them going in the right direction. And what we see then from this example is we see a balance in the church of ministry and mission within the body of Christ, uh, the caring for the body of Christ, and the outward mission of the word. These are two parts of the same body. These are two things that must be going on all the time. If a, a church has an overemphasis on bringing people in, what happens is if they neglect the needs of those people once they're in, they go right out the back door. Maybe you've seen this in a church, a church that always seems to have someone new coming in, new coming in, new coming in, but they're leaving almost as fast as they're coming in. The balanced church is doing both, ministering to the believer, but also working on the outreach and, and bringing the ministry of the word to the community. There has to be a balance. If all the focus is inward and there's no focus on outward evangelism, well then indeed people aren't truly growing inwardly because they're not sharing the word of God and they're not doing the, the most basic fundamental part of their mission and that is to make disciples. And so we see here a balance, both mission and care. Now, there's many lessons we can learn from this, but I want to point out a few as we look here. And the first and most important, I believe, is this. This passage shows us the heart of Christ. This reveals the character of Jesus Christ himself. These people were likely imported to Jerusalem, and they were likely staying here, uh, these Hellenists, to fellowship and learn the faith. They were seeking, therefore, the kingdom of God first. And now Christ is supplying their need. Where am I getting this idea? I'm getting it from the Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew chapter 6. Look what it says here. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows your needs. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things? necessities of life will be granted to you as you are seeking first the kingdom of God. You're making the kingdom of God a priority. 
He's going to meet your needs. And, and this is a great promise that we can hold on to. It is what we see uh, demonstrated for us in the book of Acts. That, that when did any of the disciples ever lack anything for furthering the work of the ministry? They never do. But it's important for us to understand this, <clears throat> that it is the heart of Christ to give and supply all the needs of his people, but the church is the context in which he chooses to do this. Let me say that again. The local church is the context in which Jesus Christ meets the needs of the members of his body. It's in the local church. He indeed cares for you. He indeed, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, wants to meet your needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual, but he is going to do that through other believers, in fellowship, in your locality. This is the very heart of Christ, this care for his people. We can look back in the book of Deuteronomy and we can see a great example of this. As Moses is going over the law with the people right before they're going into the promised land. I mean, these people, they're sharpening their swords, they're, they're tightening up their shoes, they're, they're getting themselves ready to go and conquer the promised land with Joshua. Meanwhile, Moses is giving them the very last minute reiteration of the law. Deuteronomy literally means second law. So he's going through all the laws that God gave them for how they're to live once they're in this land. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 15, there will be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God. Their civic system, their laws for living in the land, were very specific about how they were to help the poor and make sure that there were no poor among them. This is clearly the will of God that among his people, even in the new covenant, that there should not be poor among you. Oh, this is powerful truth. Listen how he says it in verse 11. He says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Now, you remember Jesus said that? He said, the poor you'll always have with you when they were, when the uh, woman was ministering to him with the expensive perfume. And Judas, one of the disciples said, you know, that could have been sold. We could have fed the poor with that, which, you know, he really wasn't concerned about because he was stealing from the, from the purse anyway. But uh, Jesus' point is this. No, you'll always have the poor with you. This is a worship thing she's doing right now. And it's true. There'll always be those who are struggling. Why? Well, you can look at a lot of surface reasons. But really behind it all is that this is the Lord wanting us to love one another, wanting us to meet each other's needs in the body of Christ to bring much glory to Jesus Christ. He says, you know, there, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open your wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. When he says there'll always be poor in the land, that's not our opportunity to throw up our hands and say, well, then we don't need to worry about it. They're always going to be here. No, no, no. That is our opportunity to open the hand. Open the hand, meaning open it to give, open it to grasp, open it to help. To, to provide the needs of those in our congregations. 
And so the primary lesson here is that this is the heart of Christ. This is the will of God for your congregation that we would meet one another's needs in such a way as we could say, no one here is poor because we all have one another. So that's the main lesson we want to get out of this. Some other things we want to see are also very important. We want to see um, that we must meet the needs of one another. There are needs in your body of believers that you're involved with. Find out what those needs are. Find out how to fill those needs. Uh, this is very important. Every person in a congregation has an opportunity for ministry. And you might be so limited in what you do that the only thing you can offer is your prayers. Then I say pray and pray fervently. But almost everyone has some kind of an opportunity to minister to another person, at least by encouragement, at least by providing the simple things, at least by inviting them over uh, every so often for a meal. Uh, maybe they're not getting the balance of nutrition and things that they can on their own. So meet the needs of one another. Next, we should avoid partiality in ministry. Now, like I said, we're not absolutely certain that this was an issue of showing partiality with the Hellenists receiving food and the Hebrews not. Maybe it was just a language barrier. It's hard to say. But nevertheless, it should caution us, even if it's just a possibility, that we must avoid the sin of partiality. We must avoid ministering more to one group of people than another. We want to make sure no one gets overlooked. And the way we do that is to prayerfully discuss all the people in your congregation, discuss those around you that have needs. Now, if you're a member of one of these these mega churches with 5,000 members, uh, we could have a discussion about that in itself. But I would also suggest to you, okay, you can't pray and meet the needs of 5,000 people. Um, form a small group. And that church probably has a small group ministry and minister to those needs and meet the needs of those closest to you. Uh, but avoid partiality. Avoid, you know, looking down on somebody for their age, for their ethnicity, for their background even, because in Christ all things are new, and in Christ we're all the same. There's neither Jew nor Greek anymore, uh, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. Lastly, bring your needs to the congregation. Uh, I have seen people exist in church life with unmet needs because they simply won't make them known and this is a tragedy because the needs aren't being met, but th there's the church and there's the intention, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ there to meet those needs. And yet they're not being met very often because they're not being shared. Remember, this is what James also said about prayer. He said, you know, some of you don't have because you don't ask. And so indeed, that the same is true of ministry. Some of you are not having your needs met because you just don't ask. And there's a lot of different reasons for not asking. I understand that. Uh, but we need to know if we really examine ourselves and why we don't ask, we're going to find behind that usually pride is the big thing. We don't want others to know we have that need. We don't want others to know that we've fallen short in managing our affairs, that we have a, a need like this. We're somehow embarrassed of it because there's a stigma that goes with it. But remember what Jesus said, you know, that you'll always have the poor among you. Okay, And if you happen to be that person, make your needs met. If you don't, then you're robbing someone of this opportunity of ministry. 
and you're robbing Jesus Christ of the opportunity to be glorified by meeting your need with his people. He has appointed those people around you to meet your need. Now, understand that when you do go to have your needs met, that sometimes our needs stem from a shortcoming in our character or perhaps even the sins of our past. And in those situations, Jesus is going to put someone alongside us that can encourage us, that can hold us accountable, that can help us through those things, and they'll do it without judging because they themselves have sinned, maybe not in the same way as you, but certainly they have, or they would have no need of Jesus Christ. So this is important. Choke down the pride. Get over the stubbornness. Make your needs known to the congregation. You have in your possession some assets, whether they're intangible gifts that you have or or they're actual tangible possessions you have. You have assets, but you also have liabilities. And this is part of what it means to be part of this body of believers is that Jesus Christ is going to meet your needs with the the assets of someone else and he is going to to make up uh, their liabilities and their needs with your assets. He's going to put together those who can mutually benefit and encourage one another. And then at the end of the day, all of us will praise Jesus for all the exchange that has happened, all the encouragement and all the help and all the kindness and all the conviction and accountability and all those things that have transpired will give him the glory and honor because he's the one that called us to this place to have the throne of grace, to make our needs known to him and for him to supply them. And so I'm giving you opportunity today, put this into action right now. I want you to grab a piece of paper or something or the, the note function on your phone or something. And I want you to find the need of someone around you in the body of believers. We're just talking about believers right now. We'll deal with the others later. Write down that need. And chances are, if you prayerfully consider this, one will be revealed to you. There is someone who needs something you can provide in your congregation. Pray about that. Write it down. And then what I want you to do is perhaps the harder part is write down what your need is and make it known to someone in your congregation. It can be just a a fellow believer. It could be the pastor. It could be a deacon. But make someone know what your need is and say, I really need help in this area. And watch Jesus meet your need. He is the rest for those who are weary and heavy laden. He is the provider of all these things. He is the author of life and and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so to speak. And he desires to provide it to you according to your needs. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this day for this great example of what you're doing in the life of your church. We praise you for just making yourself known in this beautiful way, for touching our lives tangibly to provide for needs. Lord, I thank you for all the times that you've met my needs. I praise you for all the times that I've had the joy of meeting someone else's. And Lord, I I can't decide which is better, for they both are 
hand in hand. The beauty of the unity of the body of Christ, the beauty of what makes your body function, how we're identified by love. This is the worldly expression of the heavenly reality of Jesus Christ, Lord. May we embrace it, please, and make yourself known through this great ministry. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to uh, make yourself known to me. Uh, you contact us. Uh, we are White's Run Baptist Church. You can find us at whitesrun.org. And you can send me an email personally at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com with any questions or concerns that you have. We can even help you find a church in your area because maybe this sermon made you realize, you know what, I really need to be involved with the body of believers. I really need to put my, my energies and efforts, my assets on the table for a local body of believers. We can help you find that and, uh, and give you the parameters, give you the resources to make it known. So God bless you. I hope uh, this has found you well, and I hope it's been an encouragement to you.